All right, Riverwest Church, wonderful. Great to be with you this morning. You're pulling out your Bibles this morning, which is a great thing to do. And while you're pulling out your Bibles and opening with me today to the book of James chapter two, I'll tell you about that in just a minute. I actually have a couple of uh, house cleaning items that I need to talk about with you this morning really briefly. The first is I wanna remind you that we've taken the month of October and we've devoted it to urgent prayer. So you've heard us talking about this quite a bit, but we're opening up our sanctuary right here in our sanctuary to small groups of folks. And we're just seeking the Lord together in prayer. I have to tell you this week, Monday night, 7 p.m., I was here. It was incredible to be back in our sanctuary with other believers, to hear people singing. Pastor Eric led us in a song. Even though we were wearing masks, we could hear one another. And then to hear the prayers of the people, it was so emotional. It was so powerful. You got to come to one of these, please. You, you don't want to miss it. Now, perhaps for you, the idea of a prayer gathering feels really intimidating. Let me put your mind at ease. You're never going to be forced to pray out loud. In fact, if you want to come in here and just sit and enjoy and listen, we want you to do that. But you got to RSVP. You got to let us know. The information is in, there in the happenings on our webpage. Remember, there's three offerings each week, Monday at 7 p.m., Wednesdays at noon, Fridays at 8 a.m. We'd love our whole church to come to one of these and just start praying for our church. The second thing I want you to know is that you or someone in your family has received an email from the church describing the steps that we've been taking to begin to open up our sanctuary for in-person Sunday morning worship gatherings. There's a description of what those gatherings will look like to the best of our knowledge right now. And what we need from you is your response. We got to know how many of you are ready to join us now for in-person gatherings based on that description. So please, as soon as you can, hit reply and let us know, yes, I want to be there. That's going to help us figure out how to get organized, how many services we're going to have. And so if you did not get that email, it means we don't have updated info for you. So you need to send us an email at info at riverwest.org. All right, enough of that. Let's get into the message. Open to James chapter two. When Jesus said to his disciples, I will build my church, he had in his mind's eye a vision of beauty, of beautiful unity and beautiful diversity, beautiful ethnic diversity combined together in this beautiful vision of the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom. We learned about this two Sundays ago. You remember when we started the sub-series and we learned how John, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, he had been invited up into the heavenly throne room where he was given a vision of an eternal worship service, a great multitude he described in chapter seven of people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. That's the word ethnos, every people group. And what were they doing? They had gathered around the throne of the lamb and they were worshiping for eternity in a beautiful vision of ethnic diversity and unity. 
And we said, we got to start there. We have to start with beauty. That's where the vision starts. But even in that very first sermon, there were hints of a problem. Something's wrong. Something's missing. Something's broken. And as Christians, we live in our world with this tension because we recognize there's this massive chasm between heaven's eternal vision and earth's reality. And we started to hint at, well, what's broken? God's purpose, God's design for beauty. And then last Sunday, if you were with us, I sat down with Pastor David Greenidge and it was this incredible, oh, what a privilege to to sit with that friend and have a conversation around, around ethnicity and the church and the joys and the challenges. And so much about that conversation was beautiful. And if you missed that conversation, you gotta go back and listen to that. It's last Sunday's message. But even in that conversation, throughout the whole conversation, there were hints of a problem. And so that brings us to a critical step in our sub-series. Today, we need to talk really deeply about that problem. We need to open our Bibles together because everything we do in this series, we're gonna do with our Bibles open. And we need to have a really candid, really deep conversation about the sin of racism. Now you say, why do we need a whole sermon on the sin of racism? Well, lots of reasons, but, but let me just talk about a couple things here in, in my intro. We know that this conversation's happening out in the world. The, the secular conversation is happening without any biblical mooring. There's no moral basis in the secular conversation to even be outraged by racism. But the Bible gives us a moral foundation. It gives us explanatory power to understand why is it that racism is so abhorrent? We can go to the scriptures, we can learn. And yes, many Christians would, would probably willingly admit, okay, I recognize racism is sin, but the problem is if we just stop there, we're not gonna make any progress. Many Christians would admit that racism is a sin, but we need to go deeper. We need to do some Bible work. We need to have our hearts touched by the heart of God so that, so that we can experience humility, so that we can have clarity and so that our resolve will be strengthened to begin to make change around this critical issue. So I want you to open your Bibles with me to James chapter two. Now, here's what I'm gonna gonna tell you. In the Bible, you're never gonna find the word racism in the Bible, but that doesn't mean we can't find all over the scriptures, the sin of discrimination and pride based on ethnic distinctions. So the only reason racism is not in the Bible is because as we learned two weeks ago, the whole idea of race is a social construct that was created by humans to justify slavery and colonialism and all kinds of horrible, wicked things. So ethnicity is a biblical concept, but race is a social construct. But you can find everywhere in the Bible, the sin of of discrimination and pride and partiality, which is where we'll go today. James chapter two, I love this passage and it's gonna give us a great launching point to understand this sin more deeply and have our hearts transformed. Will you look at it with me? 
James chapter two. Here's what James said. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Let me just pause for a minute and tell you that every time I read this passage, it reminds me of when I was in Eugene, I knew a pastor who actually set up his church from this passage. He tricked his church. He told his church one Sunday that he was going to be on vacation. He had a guest preacher show up that day and he came to church disguised very much like the description of this poor man in shabby rags. And he, he put his church to the test. How will my church treat someone who shows up to the assembly like this? Someday I might do that, River West. But look what James says. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts, partiality? James is addressing the way that people are treated when they enter into the presence of God with other believers. Apparently the churches that James was writing to, they were showing favoritism to the rich while treating po the poor with disdain as if they were inferior. They were making value judgments based solely on outward appearances. So someone would show up with bling and gold and Versace and they would and they would judge that person as being more important based purely on exterior things. This is what James means by the word partiality. Did you see that word in verse one? Partiality. It means to show favoritism. But to base that favoritism on purely external things, the way a person dresses, their accent, their clothing, their, their, their skin color, and then to judge them based on that evaluation. In the Greek lexicon, that word partiality, it means the fault of one who, when called on to give judgment, has respect only to outward circumstances of a person and not to their intrinsic merits. Does that kind of language sound familiar to you? I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Martin Luther King Jr. was literally, he had James 2 open. He had his Greek lexicon open as he dreamed up this vision that people would not be on the receiving end of partiality being judged based on purely external circumstances. Now, yes, the immediate context is about, is about wealthy, the rich and the poor. But that doesn't mean we don't apply this to racism. Clearly we do. And I'm going to show in a minute that partiality throughout the scriptures is almost always applied to ethnic distinctions. So the reality is partiality is the perfect way to, to talk about the sin of racism because it involves 
judging someone based purely on something external or superficial and making a judgment about a person's inherent worth or value based on that. So James goes on, verse five. He says, listen, my, be my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor man. So by honoring one person in partiality, you dishonor another. By preferring one, you disprefer another, James says. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. There it is. Partiality is sin. It's right there. And you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Okay, so there's so much to do here. I can't possibly do it all. So let me just make four observations about this passage. Observation number one, partiality is a sin because it goes directly against the character of God. This is like the very first thing we've got to say about the sin of partiality. And, and then as it applies to the sin of racism, the reason it's a sin is because it goes directly against the character of God because our God, the God of scripture, does not show partiality. Did you see what James said there? He said, has not God chosen in verse five, those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? James is saying, God does not, God does not look at exterior things like poverty or wealth when he pours out his grace and his love. He doesn't show partiality based on stuff like that. And so if God does not show partiality, his people must not show partiality. Favoritism, discrimination based on purely external things. This is about the heart of God. Our God does not show partiality. And that truth is all over the Bible. Let me just, let me just read two passages. Here's Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 to 19. And the context is, is ethnicity and, and class. And here's what, here's what God says. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the almighty, and the awesome God who is not partial. It's the exact same thing. God does not show partiality and he takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and he loves the sojourner. That word is the word stranger or foreigner. It, it describes ethnicity, someone who is a stranger to one people group. And, and God is right out of the gate saying, I don't show partiality. I love the foreigner. I love the stranger giving food and clothing. And then he says, love, their, love the sojourner therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God is saying, I don't show partiality. I'm a God of mercy and compassion and equity towards people regardless of their ethnicity or their distinctions or their external appearances. God does not show partiality. Peter said the very same thing in Acts chapter 10, verse 12, when he said, Acts 10, verse 
not 12, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. There it is. In the context of this, God had been trying to get Peter to go and share the gospel with a Gentile, a centurion named Cornelius. And Peter was resisting because of, because of racism, ethnicity, partiality towards one, his own people group, ethnocentrism, ethnocentrism. Peter was resisting and God kept giving him these visions of sheets of food and, and saying, take and eat. And Peter would say, I'll never eat anything unclean. And God would say, do not call anything unclean that I have not called unclean. Go, take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Peter realizing it said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That word, that word nation is the word ethnos again. So, so friends, what we're really talking about here when we speak about racism, we're talking about God's heart. This is an issue that breaks God's heart. This is why Christians more than anyone in the world should care about racism because this is, this is a, an issue that it grieves God's heart deeply. In 1792, two devout black Christian men entered a church in Philadelphia, St. George's Methodist Church, and they entered to pray. And what they didn't realize is that when they took their seats to pray, they had taken seats that were in the whites only section of the church. Incensed by the audacity of this, the white people who were there worshiping confronted these two men who were praying and they dragged them out of the church and threw them out into the street. The African-American community in Philadelphia was so appalled by this and by what, by what they witnessed that they left the church. This was an interracial church, which might sound really wonderful, but it was an interracial church with a whites only section and a blacks only section. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine anything that would grieve the heart of God more? So the, the, the black community in grief, they left the church and they started their own church, what, which became a new denomination called the African Methodist Episcopal Church. A-M-E, and you might recognize that is the same denomination that Dylan Roof walked into in Charleston, South Carolina with a gun and shot worshipers. And so what we don't, many white people don't realize is that the black, have you ever wondered why, why are there black churches? Why are there black denominations? What we often don't realize as white Christians is that black churches and black denominations were born out of rejection by white people. And just imagine the heart of God in that. The heart of God who says, I don't show partiality. So that's number one. Partiality is sin because it goes against the character and the heart of God. But number two, partiality is a sin because it violates the greatest commandment or what James calls the royal law. He describes it there in verses eight in nine, if you, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor 
as yourself, you are doing well. Remember, Jesus took a whole law and he summarized it into what he called the greatest commandment. One, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James calls this the royal law. And he says, partiality is a violation of that most basic law. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you're doing well. But, and then verse nine, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And the reason that it's sin is because partiality is a violation of that royal law. It's like two sides of a coin with partiality. To show preference to one people group is to show dispreference towards another. To, it's to love one and then and not extend love to another. The opposite of love is the absence of love or, or the word we often use is hate. And this is at the root of partiality. That in, in preferencing or discriminating or showing favoritism towards one group based purely on external things, you're demonstrating hate towards another group based purely on external things. And this grieves the heart of God because it breaks the first most basic commandment. If I asked you, what was the very first conflict in the early church in the book of Acts? Would you remember what it was? Let me read it to you. Acts chapter six, verse one. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now stop. Okay, just take this in. Just hold on for just a minute. This is the book of Acts. This is right after Pentecost. This is like revival. This is like, well, we always say, we got to go back to the book of Acts. The church needs to take it back to the book of Acts. But right out of the gate, we've got Pentecost, 3,000 people coming to Christ. And what do we come to? We come to an incident where people are withholding the daily distribution of food from widows. Widows? Can you believe that? And based on what? Based on their culture or their ethnicity. These were Hellenists. These were Greek-speaking Jews. And the Hebrews were, were Hebrew-cultured, Hebrew-speaking Jews. You have two different cultures, the beginning of ethnic expression, and already you have partiality. You have a failure to love your neighbor. You have people withholding food from one group of people based purely on their culture and their language and their expression. Partiality is a violation of the most basic Christian tenet. Love your neighbor as yourself. And sadly, it goes all the way back to the history of the church. The history of the church from the very beginning was marked with ethnic pride, ethnocentrism. From the very beginning, partiality. And unfortunately, it has continued throughout human history and even American history. The history of Christianity in America is 
painful to face, to deal with. Probably the most important and the most painful book I've read in a long time is a book called The Color of Compromise. And I, I recommend this book for any Christian who, who's saying, I need to understand not just the history of the United States, but the role that the church played in the racism that has marred our history as a nation. Sadly, although there were moments where Christian people and churches were doing wonderful things to battle racial injustice, for every example that's positive, there are far too many examples that are painful and negative. Heroes of the faith who owned slaves, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitefield, amazing revivalists who owned slaves and even sometimes justified slavery. Theologians, there was a Presbyterian theologian named Robert Louis Dabney who went out of his way to write theological, biblically, he used, tried to use the Bible to justify race-based slavery in America. Martin Luther King writing a letter from a Birmingham jail begging the white clergy in his community to join him in the civil rights movement, the fight for justice. On and on and on it goes. It's painful. It's, it's hard to face, but we, we need to face it because we're dealing with the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Don't show partiality based purely on external things. So that's number two. Here's number three. Partiality is a sin because it contradicts the basic message of the gospel. Partiality is a sin because it goes against the character of God. It's a sin because it's a violation of the greatest commandment. But also we need to realize the reason partiality is, 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 is such a sin is that it, it, it directly contradicts the basic message of the good news about Jesus Christ. Did you notice what James said here in verse one? He says, show no partiality as you, what? As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, do you see what James is doing there? He's saying you can't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and be a person who shows partiality. Those things don't mix. They're like oil and water. You can't, you can't hold one and do the other. Because faith in Jesus Christ eliminates partiality. It, it's like the great leveler. It says there, there, is no, there is no intrinsic difference among people based on exterior, external things. The gospel levels the playing field. It says we're all sinners in need of grace and we are all recipients of the love of God through the cross for those who believe. The gospel does not show partiality. It brings everyone to the same playing field. The gospel says there's no insiders and outsiders based on physical, external, superficial things. This is why Paul would say something like, in Christ, there's, there's not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all, Colossians 3, 11. 
the reason partiality is such a grievance to God is because it goes against this very basic message of the gospel. And so that means that of all the people on the planet who should be outraged by racism, it should be Christians because we love the gospel. This is what I love so much about my conversation with Pastor David last Sunday. He begins and ends with the gospel in every conversation that he has and and all throughout, he's constantly taking it back to the gospel, taking it back to the love of Christ. I was so compelled by David's reminder that the gospel is the key to our diagnosis of racism and the gospel is the key to our healing and to the solution to racism. We're never gonna make progress. We're never gonna bring glory to God unless we bring the gospel into these conversations. Do you remember that story that Paul told about how he confronted Peter in Galatians chapter two? It's this incredibly famous story. If you remember in Galatians, Paul describes how Peter had been perfectly willing to share table fellowship with Gentiles, with people of different ethnic backgrounds. As a Jew, that line was really hard to cross in fellowship with Gentiles. There was, they were incredibly prejudiced before the gospel changed their hearts. And so Paul says, you know, Peter, you were perfectly willing to sit and share a meal with a Gentile until some really important people from Jerusalem came. And then suddenly you pulled back from the table and you distanced yourself from Gentiles. And because of your example, lots of other people followed your example, like James and Barnabas. And so Paul writes, he says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So see for Paul, racism, the sin of partiality was a gospel issue. It's not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's why it matters so much. He says, when I saw that that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying, Peter, you know that God did not have fellowship with you because of your, because of your culture, your ethnic background, your identity as a Jew. So why would you then withhold fellowship from someone else because of their ethnic background or their culture. It's a gospel issue. And and here's what I wanna show you. There's a master stroke that Paul does here. And this is, it's so critical. If we're ever gonna make progress in the conversation about racial injustice, we have to see what Paul's doing here. Please listen carefully to what I'm about to say to you. This is critical. When Paul opposed Peter, he was not shaming Peter. He wasn't publicly spanking Peter. 
He wasn't deplatforming Peter or silencing Peter or trying to pressure Peter externally to conform to something. He wasn't saying, I can't believe it, Peter. You are such a bigot. You are such a racist. Unbelievable. I'm so shocked by what you've done. No, Paul was drawing on a much deeper well. The well of shame is too shallow. There's no real power for change. And Paul knew this. Paul knew that he and Peter shared water from a much deeper well. He knew, Peter, you love the gospel. This is what I'm gonna draw on is our shared love of the gospel. And this is what is missing from so many of the conversations that are happening right now about racial reconciliation in our world. Those conversations are so often based on shame. And that's why they're not working. It's, it's not always intentional, probably, but the way the national conversation often happens, it makes racism or the accusation of racist the worst possible charge that you could bring against anyone. It's filled with shame. To be, to be a racist is to be the most morally reprehensible person you could ever be. It almost takes the sin of racism and makes it worse than any other sin that a person could commit. And the problem with that is that under conditions like that, it's human nature to try to establish your innocence. And that's what we see happening, isn't it? People scrambling. I'm not a racist. And, and, and even people trying to one-up each other. I mean, I see white people turning on other white people that they perceive to be maybe less woke than they are and, and trying to establish their innocence that way. And here's the problem. It increases the pain of black and brown people who are hurting and then as the conversation is happening, all they see is, is white people who are preoccupied with establishing their innocence rather than sitting with black and brown people in their hurt and saying, I just wanna understand from your perspective what racism is like for you. I'm not gonna try to defend myself or establish my innocence. I just wanna listen and lament and show empathy. And so much of that is because it's the whole conversation is about shame. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we have the gospel. We have the truth of the power of the cross. If the gospel is true, I don't have to try to establish my innocence. Why would I? <laughs> If the gospel is true, my sin is far worse than I could ever imagine and God's grace is far more powerful than I could ever hope. Amen? If I'm truly forgiven in Christ, I can be open and honest about indwelling sin. All forms. I, Adam, your pastor, I don't have a problem admitting that I almost certainly have un conscious racial bias that continues to hide in me, why would, I, why would I deny that? I don't deny hidden forms of other kinds of sin, pride, lust, any of those. So why would I deny hidden forms of racism that are almost certainly hiding in me? And as people 
of grace, we can admit that. We can remain open to that. Why would we hesitate to deny it? Okay, what I'm gonna do right now for just a moment is I'm gonna sidestep and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take just a moment to answer a question that I get asked a lot. And it's, and it's this question, Pastor, what about systemic racism? What are your thoughts on systemic racism or another term would be institutional or structural racism? So, so what we're talking about here is there's, there's personal individual racist acts, one person towards another. And then a lot of what's happening in our conversation has to do with racism that gets embedded in social institutions and, and structures. And a lot of people are wondering about that, talking about that. And, and here's, here's my answer to that. And this is, gonna, this is probably gonna shock a lot of you, okay? But, but listen with me all the way to the end. Because one of our problems is, all we hear are sound bites, okay, and really short arguments and rhetoric, and that prevents us from thinking logically and consistently and biblically. So here's my answer. It would be shocking from a biblical perspective if structural racism did not exist because that would make racism the only kind of sin that has not found its way into systems and institutions in our world. So it would be shocking because we, and, and you know this, think of all of the forms of sin that eventually get embedded in laws or practices or institutions. No one would argue that lust has not found its way into systems like the pornography industry, the entertainment industry. No one would argue that pride has not found its way into institutions like political systems. No one would argue that greed has not found its way into structures and systems and institutions like the advertising industry, the entertainment industry. So why, as a biblically saturated Christian, would I take one sin and say, there's no way that could ever become structural or institutionalized or systemic? John Piper has written an incredible article about this. It's in the show notes. I recommend you read it. And his basic argument is, as a biblically saturated Christian, you would expect structural racism because you understand that if you take personal human sin, a supernatural devil who's at work to ruin our world, and evil worldly systems, you know, what Paul said, the you know, Paul said the world and uh, the principalities of evil, this present evil age, this present darkness, you take those three things, an evil world system, a supernatural devil and personal human sin, and they start working together. It would be astonishing if there was no such thing as structural racism. In fact, we would expect it to be pervasive. And we know this about history. No one denies that we created a system, the African slave trade, that we created a system, Jim Crow laws, redlining. Why would, he ex why would we expect that suddenly today that would no longer be a part of our world? There's so much more I could say about that. This is the frustrating limitation as a preacher. We run out of time and we'll talk more about some of these things next Sunday. But what I need to do is I, I wanna land the plane with one final observation. And, and this is where we end with hope. And it goes like this, like any other sin, 
partiality or racism can be forgiven and even transformed by grace. And this also is what is missing so much of the time in the national conversation, grace, the power of forgiveness. This is what I love about Pastor David. He talked about the power of coming to faith in Jesus and how that healed so much of his anger. Remember that? So powerful. And River West, we're gospel people. We believe in grace. We believe in the power of forgiveness. We believe in the power of the gospel to transform our hearts and bring about true change. This is why we have hope. This is why we can remain humble. This is why we can lament and even repent when we need to. And we need to repent about some things. This is why we can come alongside people who are hurting, who have experienced racism and, and be with them in that pain with humility because we believe in the gospel. The gospel that says, I am a sinner in need of redemption. This is why we can begin to work towards reconciliation because we know we have a power source that can actually heal our world. And so next Sunday, we'll talk about our responsibility as gospel people to work towards reconciliation in light of all this. What does that mean? What does that look like? What should we do? We're gonna talk about that next Sunday. But will you bow your heads with me? Thank you for sticking with me for such an intense, deep conversation. I know that was a lot, but God's gonna bless us as we grow in this. Let me, let me pray for our church. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the power of your word, the truth of your word, that we as, as followers of Jesus, we have categories that can explain to us and help us understand what's happening in our world. Even a category like the sin of partiality, how powerful, how important, how much with humility we need to lean into this and embrace it and learn it and, and let it, soak our hearts so that we'll become soft in your, in your hands, Lord God, that we could become a part of real change in our world. We pray for our church that we would grow, that we would mature, that we would care, that, that we would become a part of a really wonderful solution to the sin of partiality. And especially, God, as we begin to think now about worship and taking the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus hung on a sinner's cross for all of these things. And he was raised to new life and glory. And we believe that, Jesus. And so we love you and we thank you. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.